I commend all of us on taking legal roads to handle that because, boy, if the frustration didn't put the darkest stuff in our heads, I'm sure at every time, and especially when we were scared and then being like persecuted individually, like it means a lot that we stayed so professional the entire time, conducted ourselves legally. And then that's why we're still able to walk around out here and live our lives. We did do the right thing. We're not criminals. We're not just waving a black flag. Like we really did stand up for the right thing. And that's, it's protected us. And whether you think that comes from maybe a religious belief, as well as like just maybe the tiny shred of a legal system that still works. But either way, like I, I think it has a lot to do with, like I said, I think it speaks so much to the, the professionalism of our team that we were able to keep it together and do it that way the whole time. Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigalov, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigalov was either off-duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigalov was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigalov. Bro. All right, well, thank you for joining me again. I've got, I want to give a quick shout out to all my Patreon supporters. Shell Pace at the $50 level. We have an anonymous donor family at $20.20 a month. We have the Plandemic Reprimando at $17.76 a month. We have Ty, Charles, Tinfoil, Stanley, Dr. Anna, Frank, Brian. We have Kevin, who's made his own self-made $10 level. The Refined Not Burned at $5 a month. Linda, Emmy, Joe, Pat and Bev, PJ, Rebecca, Marcus, Elizabeth, Dawn, Jennifer, Ken. Frank has made his own level at 150. And then we have the Courage is Contagious at $1 a month. Amanda, Jay, Spesnasty, Darrell, Susan, BB King, and Rick. Thank you so much for all the money that you've supported. I truly appreciate it as I have put over $100,000 of my own money into the lawsuit against the Secretary of Defense. My wife has set up a gives and go. If you feel so inclined, please go give us some prayer or any monetary donations at gives and go at Sigloff v. Austin is the name of the, uh, the campaign that we're doing. But I won't this next guest that I have on, he's amazing because he got into this fight early, and he's part of what I was able to glom onto, if you will. We have Dan Robert here, and from the infamous Robert v. Austin lawsuit, and it was calling the lawyers that were on the bottom of that filing. They got me into the, all of this fight because I was already suspended. I called Dale Saran. I talked to him for about 30, 40 minutes on a Friday at 4 o'clock, and that's what turned my medical exemption that I was giving to service members into an affidavit that went to help your case. Now, it's great to have you on. What have you been doing lately? Yeah, it's, it's good to hear from you, man. It's been, a, like I said, we talked a little bit before, but it's been a busy six months or so since I left. Man, like we're, we're at eight months. I left back in November officially, and I've been all over. I started with a coast-to-coast -coast move, so I got out of Georgia and moved out to Utah a lot of people asked me, they're like, man, why Utah? That's That was so random and shot from the hip. And they're like, everybody thought I was going a bunch of different places back on the East Coast, something more familiar back to like the Bragg area or something. But to be honest, with everything that was going on, I needed to get some space and figure stuff out. And it's when there's just like a lot of noise at a party and you have to step outside the room for a minute or go out on the porch and just have a minute to yourself. That's what Utah offered me. A little bit of peace of quiet. I am up here in the mountains pretty good. If you've ever seen Salt Lake City, you are surrounded by gorgeous, I mean, misty mountain, Lord of the Rings looking mountains up here. It's pretty awesome. It's cool. And it's just not something I've been exposed to on the East Coast my whole life. Bounced around for a little bit, doing some contracting. I did get to do a photo shoot for Vortex. I thought that was pretty cool with the company that's out here. And then I'm just trying to find my place in 
kind of that the veteran community of bro vet stuff that's out here, which there's a ton. And then finally landed a full-time job building firearms for a company that's local here to me now. Like I said, it's been all over the place. I still do a little bit of contracting here and there. Started my own podcast with that company, just trying to like pull in the community and stuff because you know that's what I'm all about. I just want to pull in as many people as I can, get out as much information and make people strong. So I'm still doing that in just a different way. I guess it's a different storyline now, but that's what it's been like. Awesome. Tell us what your MOS was and then kind of lead into how you got started, how you met Todd, how you met Teresa, Dr. Long, and how that whole thing unplayed a bit. Yeah, so I was in 11 Bravo my whole career, short stint over in SWIC, as many 82nd paratroopers do, and then ended up back in the 82nd, as many paratroopers do. And then, like I said, I stayed a paratrooper in 11 Bravo my whole career, airborne for 11 of them, which I have plenty of injuries to, to prove it. And then my last couple of years, I changed the rating scheme for us a little bit, and I was like, I want to continue to develop myself. I'd been a platoon sergeant as a staff sergeant for two years. So I volunteered as a drill sergeant. And then COVID started right when I was in the middle of school. So I was like trying to do that same thing. I still wanted to train soldiers. And I was getting to a point where it was like starting to feel like a staff position. So I was like, I want to be on the ground with the men. The best way I could do that and preserve that role was to be a drill sergeant. So I went down there, like I said, mid COVID, COVID drill time. It's like, if there's an underappreciated class of soldiers that stuck it out during COVID, I have to like, hands down, the drill sergeants, man, like they, they were so low staffed. Their stop moves plus under hat and badge and stuff. And it was just like, and some of those are 18 hour days or longer and 13 day work weeks. And it's just, it's a long time. It's very rough on you, your family, your health, your sleep, your mental status. So for guys to stick that out with like the ever-changing dynamic policies of masking and spacing, and then are we picking up? Are we not? There's so much stuff going on. It was a really hellish time to, to show up. Showed up in the middle of that, and then it was, let's say, early 2021, I was in a hey, motorcycle accident. I was in Fort Benning, Georgia, which I'm okay. still calling Fort Benning to this day. <laughs> I was just like, not whatever, Fort Moore or whatever it is now. It will never Same be anything Bragg. different. Bragg's yeah. going to be Bragg to me forever. But So I was in a motorcycle accident, and this is after tearing an ACL for my third time. And I, I just I redline it all the time. I go pretty hard. And then I remember talking to one of the doctors in that room about trying to keep me in the fight. And I had a breakdown about it. And I was like, this is, this is a lot. I'm juggling all of these different things. I'm in a ton of pain. I need all these surgeries to get fixed up, broken hand, broken ribs, road rash everywhere. My knee's still toast. I had to back up a surgery for that to get fixed. And they started talking about medically retiring me, but it was going to be at least a year plus of surgeries and recovery and physical therapy and stuff. Right. So I was on crutches for a good while recovering from that with a cast on my arm and stuff. And then one of the doctors had a conversation with me in that room and was asking me if I was going to get vaccinated and it wasn't a mandate yet at the time. And I was like, no, I was like, that's, do you remember the, I don't do you remember a roundabout date? Like, I had, go ahead. Do you remember a roundabout date of this time frame? Yeah, it's hard. I want to say the motorcycle accident was around April of, I want to say 2021. So it would have been shortly oh, thereafter sometime around that. Okay. But the doctors were asking me, so they were like, are you going to get vaccinated? And I was just like, because there's just like a thing that you obviously know in your profession, they were pushing it so hard, stuff yeah. that was totally unrelated. They're like, oh, yeah. there's been a rash of package theft in our neighborhood. Best way to protect yourself is to get vaccinated. <laughs> like they'll just, they were just attaching it to everything. And you, I know, you know that I'm serious because they were doing yeah. it. It's weird. So like when that was going on, they were asking me and I was kind of, 
and I went off on this doctor. I was already in a bad mood and then their green suitor doctor too. This is a Colonel. And I got off. I was like, no, it's like, it's, I've already had it. I'm like, I'm already through this thing. I was just like, there's a whole regulation that talks about basically natural immunity. I was aware of by absolute happenstance that I had 40-562 that I had seen this at some point in my career. And I was aware of it because I was just like, I remember making jokes about it with flu shots in previous years. I'm like, I already had the flu, sir. I don't need to get it. Just look right here. But I never pushed it. Yeah. So anyway, that doctor is the one who gave me Teresa's Long's number. And at the time I was like, what is this? I was just like, this is such an inappropriate time to be slipping me your cell phone number. Like I am like, <laughs> I have no idea what is going on. And they're like, hey, Colin, talk to this person and I'll let them know. But I think they might have some things you're interested in hearing. And then after a few days, I reached out for the first time and I met Teresa Long just over the phone. And that was just like, absolutely just like, it just took off really quick. And she was talking about just like the, what was going on with it and like why it was going to be dangerous. And she's like, we're seeing a lot of this stuff. I think medically it's not a good idea. We're just, we, we knew so little back then. I think about everything that happened. And we were having a bunch of conversations about it. And she kept saying, hey, this is going to be mandated. And there's people trying to put together a fight for it and try to keep me in the loop. And then I was there, like I said, on the other podcast, uh, one day I had just gotten out of the shower. And then she like texts me this Zoom link and she's like, hey, get on this call. And then it opens up and there's all these important people. And it's got 16 people. Like I said, Dr. Peter McCullough is on the call. There's Teresa, there's Todd Callender. There's a few different people with stars on their chest. And at the time, I didn't know some of them were retired. But I was just like, I was like, what is going on? I was like, I can Google everybody in here except for me. And then I did one other Fort Benning soldier that had spoken to, a good friend of mine. And then the stuff that these guys are saying on this call, man, it was like so heavy. And I didn't want to jump into the conspiracy stuff on the other side of of things because, you know, I have some people are saying like, this is the DOD surrendering basically our capability to China. I got other people using the word genocide and I'm just like, and I'm hearing all this and I'm just like, what is going on, man? I don't understand. But then they laid out really clearly what was going on in a way that I did understand. And it wasn't like so shocking and said they were going to start this fight. And then basically I took that as, oh, so you're asking me to be like a plaintiff on this thing. And I don't know to this day in the end why of all the people that all of those people knew of all over the U.S., I was one of the people that was selected. I think that I present myself pretty well, pretty intelligent, knowledgeable guy. I try to not be too like egotistical about this, but like I know that I do have a public speaking capability and that no one's going to push me around, right? I already – not like an attitude, yeah. but I was like very confident about myself and I was going to see it sure. through. <laughs> what I don't know if they knew at the time is that while everyone had skin in the game – what I stood to lose was the medical retirement and stuff. And I was like, not looking at getting out and get enough shape. I literally had an MRI on my back this morning. I had two yesterday, one with and one without contrast for two different other problems that I'm having. So like, I'm still dealing with a lot of those issues. I knew I would. So I was like, man, I'm going to need this support when I get out. And it was like, easy answer, get the shot, shut up. And we give you your retirement and we just leave you alone and let you do your thing. Or it was like, the more I was learning and the more I saw there, I was like, no, you can't do that because you're never going to see it. The danger was so high. And then plus, after I really dug into it and became aware of the illegality of the mandate and the way it was being pushed, I was like, no, you know what? Our soldiers need to know this stuff. All the time as a drill sergeant, when a private would mess something up, because like we all did, man, I was a mess when I was a private too. I, 
<laughs> uh, most of the time just get scuffed up in basic you know what i mean my first dip i ever yeah. had in my life was in basic training so just like a terrible experience that night but uh, yeah both in trying it as well as the punishment that came with it so i know i've been on both sides of that thing i'm not gonna say i was a saint my whole career but i mean i, I learned some of the hard way there's some smart ranger some strong ranger stuff in there right and then, uh, but anyway, I always said when these kids mess up, I'd always take them in the office, I'd bring a battle buddy because they got to have somebody with them. And I would explain to them, like, you have rights here. I'm going to talk to you about what a counseling is. And I don't really look at like a negative counseling. I was like, this is a record of a conversation. I was like, there's a plan of action and we're just moving forward with this. But I didn't try to tell them like that paper is not the punishment. And I would explain to them their rights. And then when they had to do like rights waivers and stuff, I was like almost taking like paralegal levels of interest and explaining it to them. I really care about that. So this was the same thing. I was like, hey, I was like, people need to know. People need to know they have a choice and like they don't have to do it because everybody's being told they have to. And I was like, okay, so your subordinates, your peers, and everybody around you, absolutely, you have a responsibility to protect them. So I was like, just said it to myself, I'm going to do it. So then Todd Callender had my number at that point, and we started speaking. And I had told him and David Wilson, who is an attorney out of Colorado, I had told them, I was like, look. I'm going to do it. I will absolutely be like your plaintiff. Let's do this, man. I'll be the tip of the spear. I don't know why it's a staff sergeant, but okay, if I'm the man for the job, let's do it. And then I cut a deal with them. I said, no matter what happens, if I go to jail for five years or if I go to jail for four or five years or whatever, you're fighting for me every day until I have an honorable discharge, whatever it takes. I was like, you do not leave me hanging, just disgraced. At the end of this whole thing, I will not go down as an extremist. Like you guys fight for me. And they, and then they had to put up a fight the whole time because that stuff started real fast. So we started, we filed shortly after that conversation. And I mean, it, it calls started coming in from the Pentagon right down, <clears throat> right down to my company commander almost immediately. I mean, like within two days, wow. all of a sudden it was like, I remember my commander calling me in the office and I just remember like all the blood had drained out of his face and he had just gotten off the phone. He's like, he's like, so I just heard from someone he's like that I hoped I would never have to talk to in person, let alone on the phone and definitely in that tone. And I was like, but he wouldn't tell me who it was. He's, I don't know, maybe someday we can have that talk. And he's just staring at the floor. And I was like, man, I was like, so this is, this is heavy. And You're it's funny because I had told, yeah. I had warned him a couple days prior. I was like, Hey, look, I sued the Pentagon. And then like, everyone was like, kind of like Rob, like maybe I, he just wrote like a angry letter or something. And they're like, this will fizzle out. Somebody will yell at me and it'll be over. Boy, were they wrong. <laughs> I mean, we, <laughs> you know, like with the work of everything, we yeah. all did together. Like, man, we took the fight up. Like we took it hard, man. Like we definitely, we did way better than I thought I was going to be honest. I thought that like, after we hit a certain point, I thought we were going to top out and then there was going to be some military order way of just like shutting us up. And they tried everything in the book and man, here we are. We're still on our feet. We're still, still kicking. Fighting. We're still fighting. But even Todd the, told your me. Case a, still, I know I was going to say a couple of days ago. He your said, case is still going. It's still going. There's elements of criminality and the things that we're accusing the DOD of. So that's why it wasn't just about our, ours was never purely just, hey, we don't want a mandate, which I think a lot of the cases were. So when the mandate went away, law standing, case is gone. But we had like elements of criminality, obviously the DMED stuff we can get into. That was a nightmare, obviously, especially for you guys. And then like just all that stuff, it just... Yeah, that's that's my less than 20 word version of like how I got into it. And, I mean, yeah, it's like you'd have to just jump around and ask what happened next at that point. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting about Todd's case in your case, because Todd's the lead counsel and you're obviously the lead plaintiff on it. It's considered Robert V. Austin. And it seemed like when I met 
and talk to Dale Saran, it was right at the right time. And so I don't know where you are in faith. I'm a believer in God, and I think everything happens in the right time, and I think you were the right person for this fight because you, you're you so salty about it. You're so great at being that NCO. It's kind of like that father figure that's, no, bro, you got rights, <laughs> and you better stand up for your rights because no one else will. And, and teaching the younger service members that, but my medical exemption was a different angle that no one had looked at this at, where it was, and I'm going to talk about the medical exemption. I'm not talking about the affidavit because that would be wrong for me to talk about a lawsuit that's against the U.S. government since I'm still wearing, so I'm still in, in the service. But my medical exemption was about how these products and these the stuff in it, the lipid nanoparticles, are not validated for human use. And so my hope is that whenever this case gets to the end, they'll go, okay, we'll never be able to use anything with these lipid nanoparticles in it because all of them are not fit for human use. It's right there. You can go find it for yourself, but no one seemed to look at that before. Yeah, I remember, and and you and I, man, when I first met you and we first started talking, man, I thought at the time, like a lot of people, they'd ask me questions or they would try to throw something at me about it. And I was pretty much, I was like, no one in this room knows COVID better than me, dude. I'm going to tell you about the shot. I'm going to tell you about the laws. I'm going to put you in your place. And I had to be ready to, yeah. I had to keep an edge on me all the time because like at any minute, like that was constantly turning on me. And I just had to make it such an over, like an overreaction and be so on point with my notes and stuff that I was like, man, I am, I am the guy right now. I'm the one that knows this best. And then I met you, man. And then I was just like, man, I am a Padawan. <laughs> I had there's so little that I even understood <laughs> medically. Huh? Yeah, that, that, you're, you're being too so, kind, but <laughs> thank you. No, for real. It's a real thing that I felt. I was like, man, there's so much more that I needed to know. And I started digging and listening to stuff that, that you had talked to me about too. And just all of the 505s really each had to bring something to the table that I didn't have an awareness of. You and Teresa Long and Brad Miller. And I can't even remember all of them at the, off the top of my head. There was a bunch, but all of you guys had information and knowledge and stuff, especially the doctors that even Peter Chambers, you know, too. And I had conversations with him. He's been yeah. very vocal, especially since he's been able to leave, which is great. And it's like, all that information came in. So I just, and I hate to throw this word around, but it's the only thing that sounds appropriate. Honestly, it's like I got groomed into a legal weapon at that point. So like <laughs> I was all of your voices in one person. And then it just took yeah. I, my kind of, I had a reputation back in the 82nd of being like the Lord of War, like the Nicolas Cage movie, because he was just like this smooth talking, slick haired dude in a suit that just show up and cut some crazy deal. Nobody else could handle and all the time, like our battalion would be down like $30,000 in airborne supplies trying to build door bundles or something. And I'm like, hold on, zip across post and just like a couple handshakes, a couple smiles, like whatever, have a conversation. All of a sudden, I'm back with everything we need. So like, I just, I try to just maintain that confidence. And that's how everything moves on Fort Bragg is just, like, absolutely. But that was the yeah. thing. So I just took that with me and it was just open door this person, open door this person, get in this person's face. And I'd see a shitty email or something come across. We're not putting up with this. We're not recognizing this exemption or something like that. And I was like, okay. And I head on up to their <laughs> office and find them, walk into, walk into like basically the G3 or something like that. And fourth floor. Okay, Colonel, there we go. And then just, I would just show up. <laughs> and the difference is I'd be able to like, just have a conversation with these people. I was like, Hey, look, I want you to understand where I'm coming from. And I think that a lot of people on their side, especially Major General Donahoe, man, that is an evil human being. I hate that dude to this day, too, especially for everything he put all of our team through. And then just, I, like I said, I worked at the COVID facility for a short time on Fort Benning when I first got there, which is something I almost completely forgot about, which was a nightmare. 
I literally was like just Auschwitz on Fort Benning. It was like just like the craziest thing. Wow. They just took all the sick people and crammed them into rooms and just isolated them. It was like about the equivalent of just like sliding in a tray of food under their door every day was pretty much how it was. And like there was people in there that needed like access to mental health and things like that and just were cut off in a way that I'm not going to say that it was the worst conditions possible, but I really, I did not like the way that it was being managed. It just seemed really absurd to me, but I understood at the time that what they were trying to handle. Good. I did my residency at Fort Benning, the so family medicine residency, and we'd get sick privates up on the floor. They had the flu and they weren't sick. And we'd always wonder like, why can't they just go be in some unit where we just check on them once a day or once every other day? Why do they have to be admitted in the hospital? And diving into that story a little bit more, there was a reason. Some private went to a unit just like that and then was found dead the next day. And you can't leave people alone when they need medical help. And so yeah. we admitted a lot of people that didn't really need to be admitted because they needed the oversight. They needed to be taken out of training. They need to, and it just, it sounds like from what you're describing, it sounds like they went back to what they knew did not work. So the thing was, is that like some companies, if you, anyone has been to basic training, we had the older style buildings, it's called a starship. Basically there's four companies like branching off of the center of the building, which had like your classroom staff duty, like your command hallway and stuff. But it, yeah, you know, I had just an older school starship look to it. This kind of the way the structure of the building was. Uh, all the CTAs where we'd stand on the concrete, yell at them, and give them challenge stuff was downstairs, like open first floor. It's almost like the building was on stilts. Most of the companies would take and not take a full fill of like 220 privates and then have an empty bay. And as they got sick, they could rotate them to that bay and then keep them, yeah, together. But yeah, all your sick people are together. They're going to come in at different times. Like, I understand there's ways to work around that. Some people manage that very well just an internal COVID protocol. And then for some reason, the base was just taking everybody from all the schools everywhere, all over. There was even, I remember one night we were like supposed to basically check on people and go through there. And they had rules. Like if they're in their room, they weren't supposed to have the door locked and there's like elements of privacy. It wasn't like I could just barge in their sleep. Right. But there was a time that they were supposed to be outside just as like a health and wellness check. And this one door didn't have anybody at it, but I only had names of the people in the room banging on the door, doors locked. I'm banging on the door and I'm a drill sergeant. I'm getting a little pissed, right? Because this was honestly, this is where all the privates were. But what had happened was... That's how you find a dead person. Well, so I was like, yeah. yeah, I'm getting pretty pissed. And then I was starting to yell at this door and then somebody starts screaming back. And I'm, uh, I was told there's a private in this room, right? So I'm getting really mad. I don't know. I'll like, just tear this thing <laughs> off the wall, opens the door and there's like two E7s and a chief warrant officer in there and like another officer. And I was just like, what? I was like, oh man, hey, look, I am sorry. However, like you were notified of the formation, just, but it was just stuff that I was just like, wow, <laughs> they just ran out of space and they were just cramming everybody all into the, and maybe multiple people in these rooms and wow. stuff too. But it was just like, I don't even really want to get hang, hung up on that too much. But like, where was I going with the Major General Donahoe? Oh yeah. So he like had a kind of a personal mission to get rid of me after I had filed the case. And then after the big one was the Fox interview, I was worried at the time because I was trying to get stuff out on social media about, I was like trying to tell more people, but at the time I had 150 followers. I didn't even have an Instagram for very long and stuff like that. So I was like, I don't know how to, how do I tell people I can tag big pages, maybe some influencers and stuff. No celebrities spoke up or cared at all, which was super weird for the first cause in history. Not one has had anything to say about it, especially the military. I didn't know how to get the word out. And then Todd said, I want you to think very seriously about this question. Do you want to go on the news? And I actually, I'm not saying I didn't believe him. <laughs> I didn't think it would happen so fast. 
that I was just like, yeah, what, what do you have in mind? And he's like, Washington Times, we could do an article. He's like, Fox wants to put you on live on Thursday. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, yeah, man, you know what people need to know? And like I said at the beginning, we knew so little, man. And we knew a lot for what we did, but we didn't even know the DMED data hadn't happened yet. My case hadn't been dismissed the first time yet. None of that stuff had gone down. And we were just like, we were just only a couple months past the the mandate even being initiated. We didn't know about the NDCs. We didn't know about the market end date. There's so many things we knew that were just, everything was just ace in the hole to crush it. And then we just couldn't. But back then I thought the most important thing is there's a lot of people like me right now that are not scared, but they're having to make a choice and they know there's some danger in this thing. And like, they've been told it's illegal or not. And the way that these units are enforcing it and treating people is like very new. We had not treated anything like this before. I will dare say not even anthrax because anthrax was not a threat to the force stateside in a way that it caused a reaction all the way through your family homes, your gyms, your chow halls. It was like a deployment requirement more than anything. So this was like precedent setting to me, at least in the way that I saw it. So I was like, people need to know, people need to know this is the best way that I can just stand on a mountaintop and scream it. So I was like, just go on, be confident and just tell everybody what's going on. Just let them know it is a fight on in your name. It's my name. And like, it's easy to find. And this is what we're going to do. And this is why we're going to crush it. And, And we talked about it at the time. Todd had mentioned 55 different suppressed medications that were potential treatments at the time, ivermectin and things like that, hydroxychloroquine, all of that stuff had come out of our mouths and stuff. And I think that's why it aired live. And then four hours later, my interview was gone from the whole internet, like off the Fox archives, off of YouTube, like everywhere. It was just like, they're like, holy shit, get this gone now. But it was just enough. It was just enough that people saw it. And funny enough, it was all the military meme pages that picked it up that caught on to it and then reached out and then they started pumping my stories and stuff and getting information out and talking to me. Yeah. That it, Danny and the crew over there at terminal. Absolutely, man. And I thought about it after the interview with Mike Glover, I was like, man, there's so many people I didn't even get to mention. And the work those guys have done is so tireless. I burn out. I deleted Instagram from my phone multiple times. And I was just like, I'm done. I just need a couple of days. I just drop off the face of the earth. And those guys just stay on the gas pedal, man. They, I don't understand how they do it. The dedication is just like unparalleled with anything I've ever seen. And, but those guys helped get it out. And then how many, which version of Terminal CWO is he on? Page number 12. Oh, you I, know how he'd get, yeah, he'll get 50,000 followers and then he'll get his page. Yeah, like it just happened over and over again. So those guys helped get it out. And then, like I said, the personal lore of just like everybody kill Rob started at, at uh you know, I'm Benny, <laughs> but yeah, it just every, everyone wanted to know where I was all the time. Like what they, and I was worried. I was like, man, they're not going to want me talking to this new class of privates. And I did really good. I honestly, <laughs> I separated. No, I know it's hard to say, but I'd come in the morning and I'm like, and we, we'd have the briefs the night before. And they're like, all right, zero four tomorrow morning. They're getting their second round of shots. And like, most people would just look at me and they're like, Hey, you can just come in at nine. And I was like, two <laughs> thoughts. One, I'll be there. Yeah. I was like, if I'm there, <laughs> I'm going to ask questions and they're not going to like it. I want to make a scene. And I did a few times, even for other units, people had called me and they're like, dude, they're saying they've got the approved shot here. And I was just like, they don't dude. I promise it's not real. And I showed up and I went outside. I dragged their commander and their first sergeant outside. I was like, well, this is what's going on. I was like, you guys don't have to get in today. I was just like, they're, they're probably going to go through the line, but I understand what they say. No, there's no legal recourse to punish them for this thing. And they, they'd be sitting there, who the hell is this staff sergeant? This random drill is out here just telling this company commander and the XO. And I have like all the PLs around me in a circle of some random company. I was just like, hey, they don't have to do it, man. That's absolutely not true. 
so like I, it created enough problems that I that was like a little period there that like MPs were floating around outside there, and I think they were just kind of waiting for me to be like, "Dude, get out of here! You're not a part of this unit." I think that was like interfering. But the funny thing is, was the commanders would listen awesome. and they'd be like, "All right, if they don't have it, then whatever, dude." And I was like, "If you don't believe me, I will take you inside right now. I will say, show me what you're saying you have, and if it's not it, I was just like, man, I'll never talk to you again. If it's if they have it, I'm like, if they do, then all I ask is, do not punish your soldiers." for making a choice that they are legally in the right to say. And like I said, multiple times, like I was just like this. <laughs> so I got to pop up and be this like, like folk hero on betting for a little bit. Cause some <laughs> units, like I said, the people knew and they'd see me, they'd, they'd be filing by in line or they put messages out and stuff. And then they'd see my Jeep pull up and me hop out. And it was just funny. Cause they're like, people were like, like cheering. And I was just like, dude, I got you. I'm going in. <laughs> it's just funny, man. It's like, that's the stuff that kind of kept me going at the time. Like I said, we didn't even know everything. All I knew is they didn't have the approved thing yet. But man, the dark yeah. story that that turned out to be. I When I was ordered to, to take it, they told me they're doing the rodeo all week. I have to show up until they're done or I get the shot, which is, eh, that's weird. Multiple days this week, I got to show up and just sit there as a major, yeah. whatever. So I sit there the first day and I asked my hospital commander who <laughs> just got, I don't, she was only in place for two years. Usually command is three years. You, you do what you want with that, but she's no longer the commander as of yesterday, which is great. And I showed her the vial. I said, ma'am, this says EUA on it. So this is not coherency. You should have seen the fire in her eyes. And so they had me go sit off to the side and I talked to some company commander and I said, hey, this is not legal. We'll get together and talk after this if you'd like, but I don't want to talk in front of all the privates because it's not legal. And yeah. as we're talking, some guy next to me is like, my arm's going numb and it's terrifying. And the nurse is like, oh, that's fine. That happens to everyone all the time. <laughs> I got a Gomar for that. And then they, I was handing out constitutions and they said, Sigloff, why don't you just not come for the rest of the week? Two days is enough for you. We don't need you to be here handing out constitutions anymore. It's just... <laughs> People didn't understand the, like it was man, a bad thing being to a squeaky wheel and it didn't... Did not work out for everybody. Some of you guys, like I said, ate tons of Gomars, court marshals, and Mark Bashaw that just absolutely yeah. stayed just the truest, straightest arrow throughout the whole thing, persevered, and then has really like dire consequences. You know, his whole family is suffering and is about to because of this. And they have this entire time. I honestly like I don't want to get into it so much. I part of the reason I ended up with a divorce in the middle of all that stuff too is because the amount of stress this was putting on families and everything that was going on. And man, between the healing and stuff that was going on, plus the drill time, plus the COVID stuff, plus the case, plus everyone that was getting involved in our lives, it absolutely ripped my relationship apart because of just the amount of stress that it was taking out on everyone. And then one night, um, an MP followed me all the way home from the gas station, and it was weird because this dude went like lights out. And just followed me on my bumper. And I was like, okay, what the fuck is this? I was like, this dude is definitely following me for a reason. It was like only eight o'clock at night, but it was pretty dark. And uh, I turned down my driveway, which was this long alleyway like thing on post at the time. And I rushed inside the house just so I could tell my wife at the time. I was just like, Hey, this cop just followed me down here. I don't know what's about to go down. I don't know if I was worried. I'm like, I think, I don't know, FBI is about to raid the house or something, but I was like, put the dogs up. I was like, get like these things out of here. There's some, we had some protocols just in case that kind of stuff happened. There's some thumb drives that needed to move people that needed to get called and stuff like that. So that's the state of fear she was living to. And, and then I'm like, man, I also don't know. I don't even know if that's a real MP outside. You know what I mean? I don't know what kind of danger I'm in. And I'm just, there's like literally a dark alley out back of my house. And I was like, man, I go outside with a gun. This is going to go a lot of different ways. You know what I mean? So I was just like, I'm gonna have to make a choice. I see the dude standing outside my vehicle outside in the dark. And I was just like, all right, bucket. So I just go out and I'm just like, 
hey man, what's going on? And then we just, I ended up in this like kind of tense standoff for a minute. And he had to tell me, he's like, oh yeah, you just, you had a flat tire, man. He's like, if you look, this thing's like riding on the ground. He's like, if I light you up, I got to like call it in and stuff. He's like, yeah, I just wanted to make sure and let you know, dude, like the thing's, this thing's pretty far down. And I was just like, dude, I was like, just wow. light me up next time. What's wrong with you? I was like, don't do that. Yeah. Now the story that I did tell of that Wait, is did, because there was two other things that happened yeah. that were dangerous that I, I'm not going to talk about right now just yeah. because it honestly be too hard for me more than anything. But we lived in that sure. fear all the time that, you know, every, never every night I'm coming home and she didn't know, is this the night the door is getting kicked in? They're going to shoot my dogs. I didn't know if they were going to, whatever day I was going to show up to work. Yeah. Every time I scanned my ID at the gate, I, wait, I waited every single time for them to be like, hey, sir, I need you to pull over here. And just that the tension, because that was happening to some of the people, some of the people that were on my case, there were whistleblowers that got us like the vaccine, like the inventory systems from their base. CID showed up at their houses, arrested them. These teens left their homes in cuffs, laptops, phones seized. This stuff was going on around me. So we were living in fear, but I was like, I have to keep going. And we have a mutual friend and I'm not going to mention his name just to protect his innocence, but they took firearms out of his home and kept them. And they drug him out of a giant conference hall and it's bad things. They almost had him admitted against his will for psychiatric reasons, which he had no psychiatric reasons to be admitted. Yeah. The thing that I think a lot of people don't know is that I was there that night for the whole thing. The only part. Oh, yeah. So so that individual called me in the middle of that. And I basically was the first time in my whole career. I think I was thankful for wearing a mask. So I showed up to the hospital and this is a story that like, it's, it's careful. I can be very careful about how I talk about this part, but I showed up to the hospital and I had had my tattoos covered up and like my hood on. I basically looked like a Unabomber, like mask on in the middle of the night and stuff. And I, I, and I basically <laughs> talked my way past the, the hospital security, the NPs, is like unit people, everybody that was there. And I made it all the way into his room where he was being monitored and watched by all these layers of security and I was able to talk to him. I got to check on wow. him face to face. I got to hug him. And then when I did that, I mean, everything in his pockets ended up in my pockets, which included recordings of some of those phone calls <laughs> and conversations and some of the people that admitted him and the conversations that, because you know, you remember the questions and how crazy that was that had nothing to do yeah. with his yeah. like, psychological health. It was all political. So he unloaded that stuff in my pockets and then. I talked my way back out of the hospital and I made it to the point where that information and the stuff that he handed me was able to make it to the attorneys, to the doctors. And then we know, man, the story that blew open that night and they were able to get him out. But I was, yeah, I was there for it. And that's one of the stories I've been really quiet about. But if you do get the chance to talk to him again about it, like you got to hear his, his side of it. I'm sure you have at this point, but it's a pretty, it was a pretty wild evening. That went on and then, yeah, I can't think of definitely in the top three people, I think that dealt with the most persecution for trying to help soldiers for sure. And as soon as that guy is safe, I promise I'm putting him in front of every mountaintop he can scream from. Just the mouth can just go on full auto and just, yeah, when, and just let when it he's out, I, Yeah. When he's, when he's out, I want to get him to speak at this venue because if he's willing to, because, and he's seen some stuff and just for doing the right thing. Yeah. And for really easy stuff, like very similar to what I was doing in a different platform, uh, he like the theater incident, he basically was just like, Hey, that's not true. You guys have rights. And they're like, they arrested him. I was super in the end of what they said, he was arrested for that after again, this complicated two, three step thing that happened before that was the result, but that is what ended up happening over it. And then I had pushed information to multiple bases and I had little 
satellite information warfare things at pretty much every post in the military. And I had people calling me and they're like, Hey, man, I'm in a brief right now. And they're telling me they have this thing. And I'm like, I'm telling you, they don't dude. I'm like, ask him this question. Ask him this question. I was like, I want to see lot numbers. What does it say on the vial? Does it say EUA? And then those people literally did the exact same thing. Like I have friends of mine. I'm still very good friends with now that stood up in these theaters, asked these questions and then, and were able to like play stump the chump on one of those bases, a brigade had to cancel the entire briefing because they're like, hey, we're not really sure about this. We're not aware of what's going on because we want to get you the right answer. We're This is still going forward. You guys are still getting go bars and all that. They were still telling him that, but they're like, yeah, but they're like we <laughs> just want to validate some of this information. He literally just was a bombshell for doing the same thing, and it was effective. And then he ended up basically in a briefing yeah. with his battalion and brigade commander explaining his like, hey, look, like I understand what you're doing. And I think I said, I think... The message a lot of people had, I think, when they first heard about me and like some of those things that were going on, I think they thought I was a very like black flag waving, like extremist, like anti-government. Like I think that's how this stuff was being pitched up at the top. That they're like, this dude, this part, he's like just sowing right. insurgency in the force. Like I think that's how the briefs were coming down. So that's why I worked really hard. I'm serious. Yeah. yeah, like I said, there was like extremism stuff got thrown around a bunch of times. And I that's why I worked really hard to do the Lord of War thing, man. And I would just clean up and go up there. And be presentable and just have a conversation with somebody. Look, I'm not here to do this. I have brought everything to show you. I've highlighted these things. And like, honestly, I tried to make it as Crayola simple for these infantry brigade commanders and stuff <laughs> as I could, just because I'm like, I think it's their attention span is short for it because they already know what they're going to do. They've already yeah. made their decision. But like, I, it's funny because I'd always finish out the conversations with a threat. I was just like, I've shown you how like illegal this is. If this was happening in different conditions, this is a war crime. And I, I just, I would hate to see you get wrapped up in charges for something like that <laughs> just, I, would, I would always throw those things out there and um, yeah, man, sometimes that played out for me and sometimes it did not but it was like i had to roll the dice on it i look back at this and it's funny as i'm laughing about it now but man this is a fucking dark time for everybody this was really hard on all of us and like i said and just this I, is even, a very dark time for our country and even now as much stuff as i've covered is maybe october it's maybe four months all of everything we've talked about is maybe the first four months of the mandate, to be honest, because we haven't wow. even gotten to the DNA wow. data, which like, yeah, I want to hear your side on some of that, because I know you were one of the original whistleblowers on it. And like how, I don't know, it came into your possession or how you got it out. Like, I don't know what you can talk about, because I know you still have, like, so there's still legal stuff going on, but I just, I don't think people even understand like how that stuff turned up. Yeah, I was, I had already put in my first qualified resignation. So unqualified means, hey, just let me out. I put in a qualified one saying, I want to get out and stop all this BS. We'll just say, hey, we don't meet each other's expectations and we'll go on our way. And while I'm waiting for that answer, actually, it was maybe a week after I got the answer, no, Dr. Long called me, Teresa called me and said, hey, Sigloff, get on your computer real quick. Look at this website. Never heard of it, ma'am. Okay, let me get in here, put this in here. She said, I've got to be wrong. I'm doing something wrong. I have to... I pray to God I'm doing something wrong, but it looks like there's a thousand percent increase in this disease and 400% increase in that disease and 300 and nope, I'm getting the same exact thing. And that's what that means. And then about a month later is when, and she was very good about this whole thing. She said, we got to keep it quiet. We can't tell anybody because they could change it. And she went so far as to even videotaping herself doing the pulling up the information so that no one could say, oh, she's faked all this information and I saved it and various other people saved it and it's been shipped all over the country. And, and then when it finally came out, 
would you believe it that Senator Ron Johnson told the Secretary of Defense to not change any of the information and he must protect it? And then a day later, the entire database gets taken down, everything gets changed, and through some Politico email interview, they put up, oh, it was just a glitch in our system. Yeah, I remember that that Politico article. I remember that coming out, too, because it was so hard for me to believe, like, how quick everybody was like, oh, yeah, see, it was just a mistake. That's literally how, like, most of my command acted. They're like, man, whoo, this was a really big deal, and you had a scare there for a minute. I thought people were actually getting hurt. And, you know, this Politico article, I was like, since when do we take orders, like, from something like that, man? And I was just like, you really, that was enough information for you to just be, yeah. to be done with it? And it was. And I was like, all right, work continues. But, yeah, that was a, that was a wild time. I'll it, never forget my first I time I got handed a copy of that. The night that, like, because like you said, it got distributed. And I remember the night that it made it to me, I was crushed. Like, I, it's, I'm not even going to go into it because I'm going to get super emotional talking about it. But, like, I know what it must have been like for you two to feel like you were sitting on something that, like, I don't know. I can't imagine what that felt like to be, like, probably the only two people in the world that were aware of it at that time. You know what I mean? Like, how that must have felt. That is such a burden. And then to have that point in history where you guys had to decide what are we going to do with this? How do we do this? And then to know that you did it perfect. You did everything you guys could. Right. And then still like the powers that be and the evil was like going to do what they did. But like the people that know and needed the truth, we all got it because of you guys. I can't even imagine what that must've felt like to be in that position. Cause you know, man, it's just, that's, that's heavy. And yeah, and it was over like Christmas break or something, and man, my heart just yeah. sunk when I was looking at this stuff. And it was, as a doctor, we're good at dissociating a little bit and mm. have to because otherwise it's impossible to keep the fight. And the example I've used before, and I'm sure you've done some scout work or you're at least familiar with that, but the best way to describe it is, let's say you've got a small platoon of maybe 30 guys and you send your scouts up to go look over the ridge line and look down down the hill and down there you see 100,000 enemy troops and the scout says don't worry about it there's nobody down there you'll be fine and then those 30 guys go over the hill and just get obliterated that's exact so the scout would be the medical system dmed that was stood up to see what medical threats are facing the service members and to put out those eyes of that scout is akin to treason and because it took more than one person to take down the system and put it back up with new numbers it takes a conspiracy at least two people working together so that is conspiracy for treason yeah unquestionably that is the magnitude of what happened yeah absolutely and that's that's another thing that i think people just don't understand that wasn't some tasking that came down to some specialist in s1 they're like Hey, can you fix that tracker? It's not just, I don't just drag and drop, highlight things red and click the color green. Like that's not exactly how that's edited. Yeah. The massive amount of information that was attached to that thing. And then just obviously what the implications were like, I can't imagine the, what kind of like resources took to, to change that. I can't imagine. Yeah. I got you back. Let me hit Okay, we're recording okay, again. So, uh, I'm not sure where it dropped off there for a second, but I was starting to say this wasn't some specialist that changed a color tracker. And I started to say, I can't imagine what kind of resources that took or what level. But then as I sit back, I'm like, no, I can. And I, and I actually, I can put names and faces to it. And that's the hard part is knowing the truth. And um, yeah, feeling betrayed on that level, I guess, as a soldier who was like standing up for the stuff that we thought we were always trained to do and the things we were told were supposed to value. And then, yeah, being treated like criminals for that, 
by people that were actually committing, like you said, conspiracy and treason. It's a really hard time to balance that stuff and figure out how to make choices. And I will say, I commend all of us on taking legal roads to handle that because, boy, if the frustration didn't put the darkest stuff in our heads, I'm sure at every time, and especially when we were scared and then being like persecuted individually, like it means a lot that we stayed so professional the entire time, conducted ourselves legally. And then that's why we're still able to walk around out here and live our lives because we did do the right thing. We're not criminals. We're not just waving a black flag. Like we really did stand up for the right thing. And that's, it's protected us. And whether you think that comes from maybe a religious belief, as well as like, just maybe the tiny shred of the legal system that still works either way, I think it has a lot to do with, like I said, it speaks so much to the, the professionalism of our team that we were able to keep it together and do it that way the whole time. Definitely. And that that team mentality is, it was about a year ago, I think it, I put up the episode, oh, it was 50 weeks ago, so almost a year ago, ex almost exactly, this episode where this guy, Chad, he's a lieutenant, and in the Coast Guard, he called me and we ended up talking because there was, like all of us are loosely connected, and there was pictures of Comernity floating around. And this is really, we wanna, really want to thank you, the listener, the audience, who's been with me on this journey and I apologize for the difficulty with the video editing and the audio editing and sometimes it's not great but you're making a difference because I put that episode out and then shortly after I was I was it was episode 36 it's made in France not FDA approved and I got the order that you Sigloff have to get Comernity now because now we finally have it and I asked the colonel that was giving that order, I said, what's the lot number? Is it FW13331 or is it FW1333? And he said, how'd you know? And I said, because, and then he said, there's rumors out there that this stuff is not actual community. And I said, yes, sir, I helped break that story. And so the viewers and the listeners, it's not on me. It's you for pushing back at them, for watching this stuff. And I praise God that I've been able to be given a voice a little bit and get some of this information out to you. But you're making the Pentagon move by listening to some of the things that we're breaking here. Yeah, and that's a huge deal too. And the other thing that, you know, and I brought this up on the Black Rifle podcast, it was really hard just jumping way forward to my retirement to step away because I was super worried that maybe too much was hanging on me at the time. And that's how we all probably felt because it was a lot to carry. But I was just like, what's going to happen when I lose access to the things and I lose standing and I'm no longer in the picture and I can't help people and I can't be this form to put this thing out. And it was harder to like, do I lose validity because I'm not somebody with skin in the game anymore? I was like, I went through a lot of mental stuff trying to figure that out. And I likened it to like going to JRTC or NTC or any of those types of things. When you go out in the field and you train, sometimes the OCs, the people like adjudicating the kills and stuff, look at the group and see who's doing the most work. And then grab them and be like, hey, you're dead, lay down. And then the whole, yeah, just and the guy that's running the show, and they'll grab a commander yeah. right in the middle of a brief and do it. They'll grab a platoon sergeant in the middle of a chasm back. And they'll be like, hey, sergeant, lay down, you're dead. Medic, you're dead. And then like you pull your little casualty card and read it. And you're like, okay, like gunshot to the right testicle. I'm not dead, but this does suck. It's just always just something you know, just obscure that I'm just like, I'm not exactly dead, but you know, <laughs> I, I, see what I feel like I want to be. But so they would do that. And then you have to watch like, have I trained my soldiers? Have I given them all the things they need to succeed without me? Are they capable? Or is all of this, the linchpin is on me, is all the pressure on me the way that I feel that it is. And man, like I left and everyone just held the line. And everyone kept pushing. And then there's so many other people. There's so many other heroes of this story that, like, I can't even sit and name them all. But people like Nick Cupper, I think he was a big one 
I feel like yeah. when I hit a plateau and I burned out the hardest, probably around the time like that divorce was starting and stuff, Nick really stepped up, man. And then he was talking to Matt Getz and he was on the news and stuff and he was on Fox and he was he really took the torch big time. And then he took it, his whole war with Terry Adoram on Twitter. <laughs> like, it was amazing. Honestly, it was like, amazing. he was so correct <laughs> all the time. But there was always this like little element of pettiness to it. And I just, I live for it, man. It was, it was such a glorious thing. And then after <laughs> she blocked and scraped him off of her page and everything, he just kept popping back up. He just kept, he would not let her off the hook, man. He was relentless <laughs> until the day she left her office. And as far as I know, still is. Like I said, those guys, everybody, we all had a nemesis throughout this thing. And watching that one was entertaining. And we all have different ways of presenting information. Nick is very much a numbers guy. He'd put stuff out so technical sometimes. I think some people had a hard time appreciating it because it was just like, I mean, the precision of the numbers and the way he would measure things and talk about it. Like I said, he just absolutely is just like a hyper-intelligent like individual. Like I said, super about it. And man, he had a lot on the line. He has his family situation with his kids' medical needs and stuff like that. Like he had so much riding on it and was at like 19 years or is now. I was yeah, like, I think he's, I believe he's out now at, I believe he got retirement. Yeah. But there's a lot of guys like him, like, he, I said, he needs and to. Then, like our, our mutual friend we talked about and terminal CWO. There was a period there with a terminal that I feel like the Navy specifically could not do anything. They could not launch a single ship from port <laughs> if they didn't. Okay. It. Like, uh, so I feel like they had to turn in their log stat and their, their water Without, and everything. Yeah. It just, the symbol kept, it just kept up and the uh, symbol like kept said, showing I mean, up everywhere. It's so crazy. The power. We stood together. Like I said, man, nothing can stop. Imagine if the whole force had gotten behind what we started and, and actually believed us and did that whole thing. And I, I, people asked me too, don't you think it's a surprise how many people just went along with it? And I don't because of the patterns, man. Like I said, I, dude, I have 11 flu shots. I, so to be honest, I even got a flu shot <laughs> the year that I, right after it started my case, because I was like, all right, couple, two sides of this. One, I don't trust anybody to stick me with this thing. So I went off post to like a Publix and I stood in the line. And then even when the doctor came out, he's like, oh yeah, you're here for a flu shot. I was like, hold on, don't touch it. I'm opening the box. I'm reading it. I'm making sure this is the same thing I've had the last. And he's just like, what happened? I'm like, just stay out of my way. Yeah. I just, but I was like, yeah, I was just like, I was gonna go this <laughs> what, thing. I was just like, what happened right, to like, you? <laughs> mostly 51% convinced this is what it says it is. And I was just like, all right, we're going to do it. But I was like, part of the reason I did it was to prove a point that I was like, if you do the process legally and you give me a lawful order, I don't have a problem like following a lawful order. And then I was also like, dude, I'm not even an anti-vax guy, which is funny because I, now, honestly, I'm like, like for a bunch of different reasons. But yeah, that did kind of eventually <laughs> turn into that for sure. Yeah. But I did it partly to be like, no, look, you give me a lawful order. I'm going to go do it. The other part was like, dude, I just don't need anything else on my plate right now. I was just like, I had already started such a war with that thing. I was like, for me to just have another red flag and another reason. So I just didn't need it to, uh, I needed to stay in the fight long enough from a defensible position so even that year, I was like, I think I'm just going to go do it. And then, yeah, the next morning, and this is crazy, like COVID gave everyone such just absolute power throughout the DOD. So the next day when they're like, Robert, you got to go down to that same clinic where I was like, not supposed to be hanging around and you got to get your flu shot and stuff. And I was just like, here is my receipt <laughs> and here is my paperwork from Publix, I was just like, I'm just going to turn this in. And they're just like, okay. And then of course, everyone in line is, wait, can I do that? And I was just like, yeah, 
I've honestly, I've done it every year because they give you a ten dollars <laughs> gift card. So I'm just like, this is like a thing I've been doing in the past anyway. Uh, so I was like, I get out of a pee and I get free lunch, dudes. That's why like I was aware of it. But then one of my one of the NCOs actually, who is a prior service guy that was training to be infantry, got an eighteen X-ray contract, and he was going through the line. So this is a sergeant in line, an E five, like a hard stripe sergeant for sure, like qualified NCO that is just reclassing, is going through the line. And then he did the same thing because I had spoken to a couple people about what I had been doing because press service guys had their phones and they got wind of it because they had Instagram. Mm-hmm. My name was popping up and they follow mill meme pages. So they knew. And I was like, listen, sh- do not talk to the privates about this. Don't yeah. do not alert the first sergeant to your awareness of this thing. I was like, if you want to be cool, like just keep your mouth shut, dude. So like I told him a little bit of it and I told him how I handled it. <laughs> so that sergeant gets up to the front of the line and there's a PV2, a little E2 private standing there, this female. And he's like, hey, I want to see the vial. Because he said he was only getting the flu shot, not the COVID shot. And she lost it on him. And like, E2 screaming at an NCO. And then, I mean, she's, she goes ballistic, man. Like screaming at him. Like, where do you get <laughs> off telling me? what, Dude, like again, to an NCO in any situation, lost all military bearing. So he, uh, he like steps out of line yeah. and comes walking out all the way out to the lobby of the building. And I mean, she is just chasing him like like a dog chasing a car, man. Just rah, 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 behind him the whole way. He very calmly, he's like, Joel Sarin, he's like, you know, he won't show me the vial. And I, I had to defuse that situation because, man, everybody saw that. All the unit commanders, everybody, all the other privates. And they watched this dude buck and walk out of line and then almost what seemed like a personal relationship there because he came to me specifically to resolve this thing. And then other people didn't have an awareness. So I had to like, again, there's that Lord of War thing. Yeah, that's man. a good like, problem. Yo, but I kind of had to put her in her place. I was like, regardless of the situation, you've lost all military bearing. You do not like just scream at people and tell them what to do until you have one of these, like wearing my round round. I was like, that's just not really how that's going to yeah. work. I was like, so I want to see yeah. whoever is in charge of you out here now. And then it ended up being a civilian, of course. So the talk didn't go the way I wanted it to. Not in my favor, but I had to be like, yeah, keep you in mind, like, COVID things does not mean you have absolute power just because you like related it to safety. And that's how a lot of people believed it. And then you know, everything turned into a safety precaution at that point. And they just abused it. But it was just crazy, like what it did to the army during that time and the trust. I was back at the time, I did some digging into numbers and stuff, but there was more murders of service members murdering other service members for multiple years in a row from, I think it was like 95, 2005, every single year than there had been all the years of COVID deaths until the shots arrived. I mean, and there's, I think you can make a case for a lot of that stuff too. One of the best like compilations of numbers we put together, I think was that just in soldiers that got kicked out and it was like, the Air Force start, stopped reporting six months before the mandate ended and stuff, and I was like 8,600 at the time. And then I am aware of multiple to the end that I could safely and like confidently round up to 10,000 total by the end, or at least where we are. People are still dealing with it. And consequences thereof that Corporal Arnett, for example, not a direct refusal is the problem. She's on her way out now, but because of the way they handled it, she's still dealing with the court-martial and stuff. Now they're trying to add an separator. So you had... 10,000 people. And like I said, that was more than the 20 year GWAT, like all of Iraq, all of Afghanistan, and everybody that was in 9 11 in the Twin Towers. If you combined all of those numbers for 20 years of war on two continents, two countries, it was still less than we had just kicked out for that thing in a six month period. And we just, and people saw that. So go ahead. What? 
And that's for straight refusal. I know at my post, and I spoke to people who can both corroborate this, but there were privates who were kicked out for a, quote, refusal to train. The reason they were, quote, refusal to train is because they were not allowed into the schoolhouse because they didn't get the shot. They wanted to go in that schoolhouse, and they were dismissed because of, quote, refusal to train, which is illegal because it's unlawful to have yeah, and, make a service uh, member get this. I that is exactly how certain people that I've spoken about recently and even on this particular episode, that's how they ended up separating those people and they're doing the same thing, a refusal to train because they just he could not be a part of certain things or had to go miss important events to go be down there just to say no again. And you know, it was just kind of like it worked out that way a bunch of times. Yeah, there's so many. And then, yeah, the people that like saw how we were all treated and then they were like, man, I'm done. I'm not. They saw it and they were like, that could be me over anything. Um, and they saw it and then but plenty of others, like, they just went along with it and they don't care. Like I said, I think, and it's hard because, so there's a day, the day I was retiring, I was signing out or I was in one of my final briefs and there was somebody I spoke to in the back of the room that I just hadn't, I had talked to them in the middle of our COVID battle a year prior and I saw them and I went up and I was just like, Hey, you're, you're this guy, right? We spoke like a year ago. And, and this guy broke down. I watched him like the blood drop out of his face when he like read my name tape and saw my eyes and saw who I was. And I was, sta- I was like a consequence standing in front of him. And then like he broke down. He tried to explain, you don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand what they were threatening. I was like, but dude, first of all, no one gets to say that to me. But I do understand what you're saying. I promise I do know. Of all people, I get it. And not trying to compare trauma, but I was just like, that's a shitty approach yeah. to it. But he was kind of like, you... Uh, you're here, so you must have gotten it too. And I just did the Rob Grant. And I was like, no, man, I told you, you don't have to. It's illegal, dude. You don't have to do it. I'm retiring and I'm okay. And it was, you know, I had played a bunch of legal games. And I, as far as Stump the Chump goes, like that was really the thing. Every time that they'd send back a denial letter about something, I would just pull some absolutely obscure like reference out of some manual somewhere. And I'd send it back up as another exemption, which of course takes time. It would hit brigade legal and they would call and be like, hey, we don't recognize this exemption. And I'd be like, I don't recognize your authority to say no, because this has to get approved at a much higher level. And and then I'd send them that part (laughs) of the regulation and I just kept doing it. So, and I just kept them stringing it along until, yeah, like when I did retire, like the Pentagon did call down, they're like, how is Robert still in the army? How? And so that makes me know that whatever was going up and coming down, was just hitting some barrier in between. And I was just like, just playing racquetball with some legal entity somewhere in the DOJ, which has turned out to be true. And that's where it was just stopping. So they just couldn't believe it. And then by the end, there's nothing they can do. So I had a lot of resources. And I've said this on, like I said, on Mike's podcast too. They were like, man, that was like really brave of you. And I was like, dude, it was not. I had every resource in the world and that was my job. I hate to come off so like just doing my duty. But man, really, I felt that way. I did the whole time. That's why it was never a question. It was never a wavering question. I was like, maybe I shouldn't have done this. I was like, no, yeah, it's my job, dude. I have to take care of the men. You'll never be wrong. That's how it goes. But then, oh, man. Yeah. You got to look in the mirror. And that you is be able the to sleep thing that, like, I have now. But like I said, I think a lot of people have a consequence talking to me, especially now that a lot of stuff has come out as true. But they don't call and apologize, right? They just cut me off. Like, people block and don't talk to me now. Friends of mine for years, they don't want to have to face the consequence of realizing, like, how they treated me during that time. And they just, they cut us off. So that's the other side of it where some people were just like, go along, get along. And then they saw the way we were treated. There's other other population that like, 
they're literally, they're trying to suppress it in their own mind and not think about it now because we have our own war heroes from this story and they had the same opportunities we did and they chose otherwise. Some of them do realize it. Some of them think we're still insane, but it's just been very interesting to see. Yeah. Oh, it, it did take a little bit of crazy, man. It might be sure. a little bit. Thinking about, it's such a funny <laughs> picture in my head when I described it in the beginning of this talk. So there I was, right, broken rib, shattered hand, cast on my arm, on crutches, torn ACL, right, road rash all over my body. And then uh, what am I doing, hobbling after the Pentagon? Like, yeah, let's go. Yeah, I was just like, we're checking the fight to them. And just like, clink, bring it. The clink, you know, like, all of my crutches, yeah. just like leading the fight. But I was just like, man, I just, you couldn't hold me down at the time. But like, the more I look back, I was just like, dude, that was... Yeah, that was maybe a pretty egregious <laughs> step. Like I said, very aggressive. <laughs> like you said, maybe I have to be a little bit crazy to think it could work. <laughs> you got to do what you feel is right. And I agree with you. I think you were right. I think you did the right thing. I think you gave lots of service members bravery to, to stand up in their own place. Certainly there are others that we call them people who caved. I, yeah. I have compassion for them because they felt like there was no other way. And the moral injury that they sustained by thinking that it was wrong, but doing it anyways, I can't even fathom what they're going through. And I just pray that they can forgive themselves because it's a terrible place to be to think that, oh, do I have a time bomb in me? Yeah. Is it going to click off one day and I'm just not going to wake up or, or am I going to be horribly injured? Or I have been horribly injured. I spoke to a general a while back. I just cold called him and he's this war fighting general and his right hand is now defunct. He can't use it. I wish he would have the bravery to come on this show to tell others what terrible things happened to him and so that he can point. help encourage like, those that have be been holding honest, out. Like, yeah, I come off pretty bitter about it a lot because of the way that population treated me during that time that I, it became a very, I did have periods of like us versus them, but at any time, if they had come over, I never would have treated them that way. And the few that did, I was just like, Hey, I'm glad. I was like, now that you understand what needs to happen, I was like, you have soldiers to protect, make sure and look out for your men too every single time or even when people did get the shot that would say they weren't going to and then the next time i'd see them they're like hey man i'm trying to go to ranger school and i got all this stuff going on I'm like i did it I'm just like i'm trying to stay at man like I just, this isn't something i can deal with right now but i was just like okay but then i said the same thing to them i'm like but now you're safe right now you don't have the threat of losing everything and you're going to stay in a leadership position because if you fought it you would move really early on so i was like now that you're safe and in a leadership position you have people to protect I was like, you still have a duty to them to not force them. I'm like, you saw how you felt. You know how painful that was to make that choice. You fought with your wife about it. I was like, so don't put them through that thing. And I had that conversation with a lot of people. I did. And I just like, but the whole time I was just trying to, but usually by then it was too late. They had already been in the process of chaptering guys. And I don't know, it's just so wild, man. It's so wild to think that like all this happened in a three year period. And while that seems like a long time for certain things, it blew by. And it was just very dense and so much stuff going on. And other times I felt like this is never going to end. Especially when I was waiting for the decision on my med board and if they're going to chapter me or what was going to happen, if I was going to lose everything. It was a super terrifying time to me. I felt like I was waiting for a hundred years for them to make a decision on that. And then they finally came back and that was the way it played out. But yeah. it is a good point. Like I said, I could definitely have a little more compassion at times because I told them before, I was like, I didn't hold hatred in my heart for the people that did it. I was like, I hated the fact that they were forced. I just wanted you to have a choice. I'm like, as long as you made a choice and I wasn't like, fine, yeah. you're on the other team now. I'm like, this isn't dodgeball or some, you know, it's just some game like that. Like, it's, I was just like, dude, I was like, as long as you made the choice for a reason that you understand, okay. I was like, and I just like, I, mean, I hope you're good. I'm not trying to put it in your head, but like, <laughs> you rolled the dice, dude. I hope you're okay. 
And a lot of them are, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my soldiers that were my privates that did make it through graduation, a bunch of them have medboarded with problems now, man. Myocarditis problems and stuff like that. And believe me, I am the first person they find until after it happened. And they always blame it on something else. But... Dan, I think that's a perfect place to, to wrap it up. I truly appreciate you coming on. This is, this has been great. I, I love to, to spend time with you and being one of the OGs in this fight because you were in it long before I was. And I appreciate you taking the stand that you did being the NCO, the backbone of the military that you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be the strength, the bravery, and the courage to, and to lead above and below, right? To help those that are above you, who outrank you, tell them, this is the way to go, guys. This is the fight over here. And those younger than you to teach them, hey, guys, we're in a fight. You may not realize it yet, but it's over here. I appreciate that a lot. Either way, it's honestly just good to hear from you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate this chance, man. Don't be, yeah, it's uh, great to don't hear be from a stranger, and I really appreciate it. We're still fighting, still telling our story, so thank you. Just a reminder for everyone out there, duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear. I recently got a new affiliate. It's Harvest Right Freeze Dryer. I've been using them since 2016. It's a great way to preserve food for long periods of time, up to 25 years if stored properly. Please take a look at it, use the link below. Thank you.